This is Make Something Cool. I'm Alex Sugg. Today, I'm really excited to be sitting down with Wes Cow, the co-founder of Maven, which is an incredibly cool online learning platform, which we will talk about in a bit. And before that, she was the co-founder of the Alt-MBA with marketing legend Seth Godin and has helped many, many cohort-based courses for Outlier.org, David Perel, Tiago Forte, and many others. Wes, stoked to have you on. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Alex. Yeah. So I want to discuss learning in this podcast and untraditional forms of education. I kind of, you know, looking in your background, you've really built an awesome career doing kind of untraditional forms of education. But I think first, I want to start with an idea of yours that I really, really like, and that is having a spiky point of view. And this originally comes, I believe, from a post from July of 2020. So let's start there. What does it mean to have a spiky point of view? Having a spiky point of view is having a point of view that is your thesis on your function or your field or your industry. Mm. And it's it's something that makes your audience think differently. And the reason why a spiky point of view matters is because there it's very, very noisy out there, right? And it's getting it's getting noisier by the week. So every single platform, there are so many people trying to grow their audience, trying to, you know, share, share their thoughts, share their thought leadership. And what you don't want to do is get lost in a sea of sameness, mm. right? Kind of just drown with all the other voices out there. And so if you're saying the same thing as everyone else, then of course your audience is going to, to tune out. And so having a spiky point of view is really thinking critically about, you know, what are some unexpected or unconventional beliefs that you've developed through personal experience, through being an operator, through, uh, you know, hands-on actually doing of your craft. And so, you know, leaning into those spiky points of view is a great way if you're ever thinking about what should I write about for my next post or what kind of content should I create or how do I approach a sales prospect? You know, it's not just for marketing, it's for sales too. Mm -hmm. If you hop on a call with, with a sales prospect and you kind of hash out the same thing that, that every, uh, every salesperson kind of talks them about on the phone, there's no reason why they should pay more attention, right? right? But if you lead by adding value and sharing your spiky point of view, that makes them say, huh, I never thought about it that way, but you're right. Like, mm. I, I kind of need to go back and think, think about things now because of, you know, the, the perspective shift that you just gave me. That's really, really powerful. It establishes the value that you bring, the credibility that you bring, and it instantly helps you stand out. Yeah. What's a spiky point of view that you have? Oh my gosh, I have so many. I have so many about so many different things. Um, <laughs> I, I think one is that most people overemphasize launch day. So they'll mm. spend a ton of effort on this really big launch. They'll plan for it for months and it'll be amazing. And then, you know, the confetti settles. And, you know, a week after you know, you're kind of twiddling your thumbs thinking like, okay, well, what do we do now? You know, we saw this huge spike in traffic, you know, you know, the launch was successful, but what's our ongoing plan for driving customers, for driving awareness, for getting people excited. And so I think that, that a successful launch is actually a great launch day, plus the ensuing months and year afterward still, you know, being just as concerted of an effort. So that's one example, right? Because a lot of people will tell you, you know, here's how to plan for a great launch, right? There's a lot of talk about product launches, uh, you know, launching your course, launching your, you know, this or that. But I actually think that that part is is less important than spending more focus on um, a really foundational strategy that's sustainable and ongoing. Yeah, yeah, I, I fully agree with that. It kind of makes me think of, I'm sure you've you've heard the the Peter Thiel 
famous, famous investor, but his question that he asks and all of his yes. Answers, um, I believe the question is, what is a idea that you believe is true that no one else believes is true? And I think he and I'm, I probably miss said exactly what that is. But when I first read that that in his books, zero to one, it was just such an eye opening moment of like, oh, that is how you differentiate. And you, yeah, all of us have these things. It could be about big issues in life. It could be about societal issues. It could be about business. It could be about work. But I think having a point of view and not getting lost in that, the ocean of sameness, what you're describing, that is the only way to survive now. Uh, yeah. There's, there's, it's the only way to really separate yourself from the crowd. Yeah, I completely agree. And, and I think it's important to point out that a spiky point of view is not stirring the pot and dropping a hot take for the sake of it. Right. A lot of people make that. Peter does do that. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I I think think that's a common mistake because people think, okay, well, I want to be spiky. So I'm going to say something that is, you know, kind of controversial Mm -hmm. and bold and like makes a sweeping claim. And, you know, if you can't back that up with logic and with a business case and with, with, you know, rationale, uh, it's, it's very surface level and it's kind of cringe, you know, like totally you, you see on Twitter, like people just making these really bold claims or you're like, OK, that's not even true. First of all, it just sounds it just sounds like an adage, right? Like it like an axiom and uh, kind of like the it, it uses rhetorical structures. Right. So with JFK saying, you know, ask not what you know y- your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. So people will use structures like that where it's like, don't do this, do this. Right. Or like mm-hmm. use kind of these these common rhetorical structures and fill it with content that just does does not logically hold water at all. If you think about it for two seconds. Right. So don't do that. Right. Like like Spikey Point of View is not just a hot take. It's something where you genuinely believe in it and you have proven it mm. through your personal experience. So it doesn't need to be, you know, the capital T truth, but it should right. be your truth, something that you're willing to advocate for and have conviction in. For sure. Yeah, I think. If there's one, because th- I'm, I, I can get pretty annoyed when I'm like, wow, people are just kind of blindly following everyone into whatever, and it's like, what do you really believe? But then I get equally annoyed by the people who are just blindly contrarian to everything, and it's like, yeah, there's yeah. actually, you're actually just as silly the totally. other direction, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. No, I think that's really, really smart, and I think that that's a really interesting take. I mean, have you, have you gotten any pushback on some of these spiky point of views in the past? I'm sure you have. Yeah. I mean, I think that comes to the territory of having a spiky point of view. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's, it's, it's part of the reason why more people don't share their spiky points of view, I would say, right? Because when you share it, you, you invite and open the door for someone to disagree with you. Mm-hmm. And the best spiky points of view have multiple, uh, multiple counterpoints where someone could say, like, actually, I think the opposite, mm-hmm. right? So it's totally valid if someone, you know, going back to my example of, my speaking point of view that that launch day is is overly you know aggrandized and focused yeah. on I, I can imagine a bunch of marketers saying no actually launch day is really important it's it's the day that kind of you're announcing you're kicking something off it sets the tone right you want to start off strong uh also you can leverage all that traffic for ongoing mm-hmm. growth right so there's a bunch of great reasons why you should focus on launch day Right. If if your spiking point of view is about something that is not debatable, it's so obviously wrong that yeah. that no one would believe it. It's not really that spiky. It's just common sense. Right. Right. Yeah. Do you feel like you're resilient to those arguments? I because I I feel my I feel personally I'm a pretty like 
I can get a little bit insecure and I'm overcoming this now. I'm working on it, but I loved, I like to be liked and I don't like to uh, ruffle feathers, but I'm finding that I actually have very strong opinions that I think I want to share because I think a lot of people might share those opinions as well. And it might be cooler to actually connect with people. But I know that with that comes the cost of criticism and critique and those things. Do you feel pretty resilient to that? Well, everything you just said, I, I definitely feel. Okay. Um, and I felt them more early on. So yeah. I think I've gotten better about sharing my spiky points of view and doing it with with less, you know, internal strife and worrying and like debate, you know. Yeah. Um, I think the more you do it, the more you're like, okay, actually, that wasn't so bad. Right. Um, and a bunch of people agree with me. So like, you know, like there's some people <laughs> who disagree, but you're also going right. to realize a bunch of people um, actually share, share a point of view there. I think the thing that helps me is really making sure that I, I believe in the idea. Sure. Like, I don't want to just say something that will serve the pot. And then if a bunch of people come at me, it's like, was that worth it? Like, was that right. worth, you know, the stress of people coming at me? But if it's something you really believe in and people are, you know, are, are you know, offering counterpoints, chances are you've thought of those counterpoints and you actually, you have answers. to them. So when people point out like, oh, well, what about this? Or I disagree. I have uh, responses. Because right. those those are things I think about a lot. Like this was not a flighty random opinion. This is something right. that I've been thinking about for years and I've felt for years and then finally decided to share. So there hasn't been usually there's not pushback where it's like, oh wow, like I that like came out of left field. Mm. Um, but if there is, it's like, okay, well, that's great. Cause now this sharpens my idea and sharpens my thinking and helps point right. out a blind spot. Uh and then speaking of of ones that were, you know, a little a little spikier than average, I just thought of another one. I recently tweeted about how I think that most people who complain about their bosses being micromanagers, that there might be a chance that your boss is actually a micromanager. Fair. But there is also a chance that your work just isn't that good, that you're not that organized and you don't really communicate what you're doing. Uh, The work output is objectively not that strong. And so they have to step in or they have to give you feedback or they have to check in with you. And it's not them breathing down your neck. It's simply that if you actually stepped up in a couple areas, then then they wouldn't, quote unquote, micromanage. And that micromanaging is actually, I think it's a very mislabeled term that, you know, if you're, if anyone is checking in on you or where you feel a little bit, you know, imposed upon, it's really easy to just throw that label like, oh, you're being a micromanager. I'm being micromanaged. Like, just let me independently do my work. Right. But it's like, objectively, there's a bell curve of competence. And like, we can't all be in the upper 10%. Right. Like, so, so, and, and this is not just like a value judgment on like, you are bad or you are good. It's, there are varying degrees of skill based maturity that we all have. Right. Like, you might be better at some things. And so you operate independently on those things. And then there are other areas where, uh, you might need a bit more handholding or more guidance or more thought partnership. Right. Or more checking in that that you're not as on areas you're not as good at. And so like that was something this is something that I've been I felt for years. Mm-hmm. And and just was like, oh, I don't want to say this because I don't want people to come at me. You know, like it's just it's so it was just one of those things where um I held off on saying it for a long time. Um uh, I want to do a thread on this, actually a yeah. longer thread, but I started off as a single tweet to kind of test the waters. Yeah. And the response was actually more positive than I thought. Uh there were definitely people who disagreed who were like you know, very strongly, like, mm-hmm. you know, as the manager, there's a power dynamic. So it's it's pretty much always your fault as a manager. Like you either, right. you either like didn't manage them appropriately, didn't set expectations or like hired the wrong person or you should let them go. Like if they mm-hmm. don't perform well after, you know, additional training, 
handled, et cetera, they might just not be a fit. So there were, you know, some some arguments like that, which which is kind of fair. Like I see that point of view too, right? So uh but yeah, like that that's an example of a good one where I thought the conversation and the, the comments were so rich. They were so interesting to see what other people were reacting to. It pushed my thinking. It felt really good to share, to think about how do I share this idea in a way that isn't just like an attack on people, right? Like how do I right. how do I share it in a way that is spiky, but also accurately represents the idea without overstating it or or being overly extreme. So it was a good yeah. exercise for me too. Yeah. I'll swim out into those uh, scary waters with you. I think that's a really good take. And I think it's a, it's a it's a bold take because I think currently in society, if you, you know, if I were to go tell my friend or if someone was going to come tell me like, gosh, my boss, my manager is such a micromanager. The instinct is to just be like, I know I'm so sorry. Like that's so I'm so you're, you're clearly just an amazing worker on your own. You clearly are just crushing it. You don't need anybody to check in. Why are they so mean? What is that? (laughs) But it's like the reality of the situation is, you know, everyone has a different idea of what is micromanaging even mean? Like that's, it's could be someone who's like, gets told something once and they're like, wow, you're such a micromanager now. And so it's very like, in society, I think very culturally, like um, a lot of people want people to like maybe feel kind of bad for them. But it's like from a manager's point of view, it's like this. There are all kinds of ways that this could play out. And there, you're absolutely right. There are times when micromanaging is absolutely real. But that's probably not maybe even the majority of cases like <laughs> and that's so that's a but I haven't really thought about that personally. But hearing you talk about it, I'm like, yeah, that's actually a really good take. Yeah, I, I think being intellectually honest is so important mm. for yourself, like for your own growth and for your own critical thinking. So when I reflect back on my 15 years working full time, there were definitely times, especially early on in my career, where I complained about micromanaging bosses, mm. where I yeah. thought like, you know, this person didn't understand me. I was working so hard. I was slaving away. Like they didn't appreciate me at all. And they just, you know, constantly were throwing, throwing work over the wall, uh, you know, and, you know, there were, there were definitely there were definitely times when, you know, I, I've had managers that were actually bad, like mm-hmm. threw me under the bus, uh, you know, blamed me for things that, you know, that, that, you know, were my fault, like, like really actually gaslit me, like really actually bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there were a bunch of times where in the moment I thought the manager was unreasonable, but actually I was unreasonable. Right. I did not let them know, like, what was going on in my world. Uh, I didn't, I didn't communicate with them. Um, I didn't share that I was struggling. You know, I didn't, I didn't ask questions when they, when they assigned me something where, you know, I just then spent hours spinning my wheels, figuring it out because I didn't want to seem, uh, dumb or less capable than they thought I was. Right. Like I wanted to seem like, like the high performer that, that they thought I was. Right. Mm So, so there were a bunch of things that I could have done differently to show more ownership and to just manage the situation better, you know? And at the time I was less mature and it was just like, it was just easier to just have the worldview of like me being a martyr, you know? And so, yeah. So like, I think that intellectual honesty is super important that like, yeah, it's, it's kind of like the Reddit subthread AITA. Have you heard oh, of it? Am I, I the asshole? No. Oh my God. It's amazing. So it's, it's That's am I the asshole? And so I think there are, I'm going to butcher this because I, I don't read it that often, but I love the concept of it. So it's basically like someone will post a situation and be like, well, I did this and my girlfriend did that or, you know, my boss did this to me or my, you know, this happened to my neighbor. Um, Am I the asshole? Mm -hmm. And then everyone on the Internet will chime in and say, like, 
uh, you're like, yes, you are the asshole. No, you're not the asshole. Or like, no one's the asshole. Right. Right. Or you're um, both assholes. Or you're both assholes. Exactly. <laughs> you're both assholes. Yeah. Yeah. I think those are, I think those are the four. And I love this because it's, it's so hard to tell sometimes, like, am I the person who needs to change or are mm. you the person who needs to change? You yeah. know? And I think that our natural instinct is to assume that the other person is unreasonable. Right. That other people are unreasonable, but we are always reasonable. Yeah. Right? And like, if you just think about that, like, that just doesn't make sense. It can't be possible that everyone else is always unreasonable and everyone thinks that about other people. And yet, like, we ourselves are always reasonable. Like, it just, it just doesn't hold, you know? Yes. And so, so we have to admit that sometimes we might be the one that, you know, we, we are the asshole in the situation, right? There's more that we could do to, to better handle something. Yeah. You're like preaching to me. I feel like in, in 2022, especially like being an online creator, just being online in general, like intellectual honesty feels so risky. I feel like to for someone to say like, I'm actually wrong about something or I'm actually the one who's failing in this certain area or I actually don't know what I'm talking about. Like those, <laughs> that level of honesty feels so risky today. Is that a, do you feel like you're naturally intellectually honest or is that a learned skill? I think I tend to naturally be a more self-conscious person. Yeah. So, you know, when I first started tweeting, uh, you know, so first of all, okay, so I, I, I joined Twitter, I don't know, like 10, 15 years ago or something. Mm -hmm. um, and I had like, you know, 500 followers for like nine of those years. Uh, and in the last two years, I, I grew to, to where I'm now, 150,000 followers. So for most of posting online, I was completely obscure no one read my shit, like, fine. But I was still so self-conscious. Like, I would literally tweet something and then delete it one second later because I wanted to switch the word order of something. Or like, right. yeah. or I wanted to like change the last line of it. Like, right. you know, and and so it took me a while to not, to, to, to um, evolve, mm. to not be so self-conscious. Yeah. And so like, there are, there are some people who will have a thought and then just tweet it and then not give it a second thought. Like, it just something comes to them and they do it. That's I don't crazy. know what it feels like to be that either. person, but yeah. it must be awesome. But you know, it's it's so funny because um there's there's a great story of Bob Dylan and mm. um, Leonard Cohen. So mm. two of the greats, right? Goats, both in their in their own right. And I think this was this is in the 1980s. I think 1984, they met up in Paris. Bob Dylan had just performed a show. Leonard Cohen Le Leonard Cohen attended the show, and then they met up for coffee the morning after. And they're talking about the show and, you know, complimenting each other on their work. And, and, um, and one of them, Bob Dylan asks Leonard Cohen, uh, oh, so, you know, how long, hey, I loved one of your songs. How long did you take to write? Uh, I think it was, I think it was Hallelujah. Like, how long did it take you to write Hallelujah? And Leonard Cohen says, uh, I forgot, I forgot, some time frame he says, like five days or something yeah. or, or two months, something like that. And, and then he asks Bob Dylan, um, oh, so how, uh, how long did it take you to write one of your songs? I think it was called I and I. And Bob Dylan said, uh, oh, like, you know, a day or two, like a couple minutes. Like, just, it just came to me, right? And Leonard Cohen was just like shocked and said, okay, actually, I lied. It took me five years to right. write, <laughs> uh, to write Hallelujah. Actually, you know what? I butchered the story. Originally, it took him, it had taken him two, I think he said two years. Okay. And then he, he had, he had actually downplayed that already, and it had actually taken him five years. Wow. So what do you do with that, right? Like, people have, people have interviewed Leonard Cohen afterwards, you know, in, in the years after, saying, like, 
what do you make of that? That that Bob Dylan is so prolific, he writes so quickly, uh, you know, songs seem to come naturally to him, and it took you five years to write this song. And Leonard Cohen said, it's just the way the cards are dealt. Right. And I love that. It's so honest. Because mm. it's like, what can I say? Like, do I wish I were kind of more of a natural sharer in today's day and age, especially? Yeah. Like, I think I think natural shares have an advantage because being consistent with sharing, being prolific tends to be rewarded by algorithms uh, and, and audiences like, you know, hearing from creators that they follow. So if you're someone who kind of takes longer to create or, or is more thoughtful or more self-conscious, you know, it's it's it can be a right. little bit harder, you know, but but at the same time, Leonard Cohen also, you know, is a legend, One of the best. right? Oh, yeah. So yeah. so that the fact that it took him longer, his process was different and, and slower didn't prevent him from reaching greatness, right? right? And having a lasting impact on music um, oh. and being someone that Bob Dylan has repeatedly said that he admires, right? So I think it's, it's, it's one of those things where as a creator, whether you create a podcast, whether you write your newsletter, you write content for your company, you, you know, write tweet threads, whatever, like all of this is creating YouTube mm. videos. You need to acknowledge your own natural instinct and style, mm. you know, and, and, the sooner that you can stop the self-loathing about your style, uh, for me, like that, that was a big thing, right? The sooner, the sooner that I stopped the self-flagellation about like, oh, I wish I were more this or wish I were more that, right. I was able to then lean into the things that I am good at and create a, a posting cadence that made sense for me, right? That right. felt uh, rewarding and was also great for my audience. So I think really like not trying to fight your natural style or the natural medium that you want to be in you know if you're if you're more of a if you like writing and you don't like doing being live on camera like don't start a youtube channel you know right. start a Substack newsletter like there's so much room in every platform for winners and multiple winners mm. so lean into something that you actually enjoy doing because one of my one of my adages is that everything takes longer than you think so yeah. so this will take long this and anything else you do to reach greatness will take longer than you think and if you pick something that you don't like doing it's just going to be too much of a slog and you're going to quit before you you start to be able to reap the rewards. 100%. Yeah, that's so good. I'm curious, you kind of, uh, you mentioned, so it was 10 years on Twitter or nine years, and then two years ago, you saw this exponential growth. What did you change? So for most of those years, I was not posting very often. Like I didn't post for, I think, five years, a single tweet. Um, so okay. I just wasn't active. It, it wasn't a priority. And uh, two years ago, a year and a half ago, I started prioritizing it more and then posting threads. Okay. So, so that was really uh, what changed. It was when I started Maven and realized that my co-founder, Gogan Biani, who co-founded Udemy, had a big audience at the time when we started the company. And it was so helpful for getting us our first set of customers, creators, just kind of showing up on the scene saying like, hey, here's Maven with a bunch of interest, just like ready to go because people were excited. It was a, it was a channel where we could reach people who were glad to know that we now existed. Um, right. And I really saw the power of what a platform could do to, mm. to you know, share, share your ideas, you know, be a gathering place for like-minded people. And so, you know, his audience was such an asset for us. Uh, and at that time, I think he had, he had like 100,000 followers. Yeah. And I had, I, th I think at that time I had like 10,000 maybe because the year okay. before that I kind of started posting. So I went from like 500 to like a thousand to 10,000 and then in one year to 10,000 to 250,000. And yeah, so, so just thinking about it more as, as uh, something to prioritize. I think that the thing that 
that I struggle with um, and still struggle with as a creator operator, which I think many of us are. Uh, you know, you're a creator, but you also have a full time job or you're a full time founder or you, you know, mm-hmm. you have, you know, other projects, you're consulting, you're coaching, et cetera. Right. One thing that I struggle with a lot, even even now, is switching between content creation mode and operator mode. Right. It's just a completely different part of my brain. And I know that there are people who who do it more seamlessly. Um, totally. But for me, it, it is it is quite different. It's almost like, you know, Paul Graham talks about maker mode versus manager mode, right? If you're a maker and he's talking about it mainly for engineers who are, you know, they need to block off time to get into flow to code. But then other times, you know, if you're an engineering manager, you might need to manage people, project manage, community, you know, manage up, et cetera. So it's similar. I think there's, it, it's mm. like two modes, like content creation uh, is is so different. Even if on a daily basis, you are writing a lot, mm. right? Like, Totally. I write so much in Slack every day right. to my team, right? To, you know, to give feedback, to to debate different ideas. I'm writing so much, but it's a different part of your brain than right. content creation where you are sharing ideas to an external audience. Yeah. So yeah, I think like that tension is something that I'm constantly trying to navigate. For sure. 100% I I relate to that and you're you're light years ahead of me in in a lot of ways but I do feel like these two parts of my brain one being very operational the other being very like creative or creator driven it's very hard for those to coexist in like the same day it's like very hard for me to be like yeah I'm I think like my it almost feels like an emotional or like mood mood more than anything it's like my mood feels more like content today and my mood feels more like operational ceo founder mode like it's kind of interesting how how that works but yeah i i I think that's i'm curious i do want to get a little nerdy about twitter though because that is a pretty drastic jump from even ten thousand to one hundred fifty thousand. so you you're you attribute that to just threads 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 is part of it um posting consistently posting high quality content every week at the same time Okay. Uh, is is the real base basis of that. And so, you know, if you're posting once in a while, you know, and it's and it's only okay, like you're probably not gonna see results. But being being very systematic about it, I don't think I missed a week for like nine months straight or like ten months straight. Gotcha. So yeah, and I think I actually think the one of the reasons I was able to do that was because I'd started writing my blog in twenty ten. Hmm. And remember earlier I said that I was I was writing into the void. <laughs> so yeah. tweeting and 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 posting blog posts into the void for many years. Uh even today my my newsletter and my subscribers are are small. But I wrote very consistently for the past how many years is that now? It's 2022, 12 years. And so the so we started Maven in 2020. In 2019 when I was consulting, I was a creator consultant, a creator operator then. I wrote 43 essays. Mm. And then in 2020, when we started Maven, uh, or no, 2020, I wrote 43 because we started Maven near the tail end of the year. And then 2021 was my first full year of Maven, and I wrote five. So you can kind of see the drop off of like, okay, like when you switch from being a full time uh, consulting trader where you manage, you know, your own schedule, I was a solopreneur to running a company, like huge drop off. But basically, in the past 12 years, I, you know, there there were ups and downs with years where I wrote more and years where I wrote less. But it was very consistent with with sharing my ideas and and yeah. sharing different frameworks that I I was learning and and figuring out 
along the way. And so basically for over a year, my threads were blog articles and essays that I'd already written that I translated into a thread. Smart. So if, if I, if I had had to think from scratch on all of those different ideas, I don't know if I would have been able to keep up with that content cadence with that level of quality. Right. Um, So like spiky point of view, strategy versus self-expression, eyes lighting up, brand versus performance marketing spectrum, you know, all of these rigorous thinking. These are all ideas that all these, you know, all frameworks that I came up with before, before I even started tweeting, you know, and, and each of those essays, there were some that took 40 to 50 hours to write. Wow. So these are things that like were heavy, heavy, labor intensive, right. like, you know, efforts that were, you know, that were, that were very strenuous at the time yeah. and, you know, but felt worth it because, you know, if it's something that you've been thinking about a lot and you are constantly explaining to other people, get that down on paper, you know, like yeah. you're already talking about it. Like this is something that is meaningful to you that, that you constantly refer to. It is so amazing. Let me tell you to be able to send someone a link. <laughs> rather than explain. explain it from scratch every time and like drive yourself nuts because you're like, why don't you know this? Like, oh, right. So you yeah. can just send someone a link and be like, oh, hey, I wrote more about this here, right? Or you yeah. give like a one-liner or two-liner and then and send them a link. To this day, my articles, I'm still doing that with articles. Yeah. But starting Maven and and shaping our culture and getting, you know, especially when we were starting, you know, helping new team members understand our culture, or understand rigorous thinking or, right? Like spiky point of view is now something we teach in the Maven course accelerator. We've had 900 instructors come through this two-week cool. free boot camp, right? And that this is one of the first things that we teach them is spiky mm-hmm. point of view. And we link to my article, right? So were those dozens of hours spent thinking about the idea, writing it, making it really strong, gathering examples, sharing counterpoints, and then my reflections to those counterpoints, like making it really hold water and making it really rigorous, were they worth it? Absolutely. Totally. Well, and it's kind of like you are, I think it's Sawhill Bloom which I think he's done a Maven course in the past, actually. Yes, he's um, a friend. Yeah. Very cool. But he he has this idea, and maybe it comes from James Clear, all the all the amazing writers out there. One of them says, uh, talks a lot about like creating, you know, opening up your surface area for luck. Mm. And what I'm hearing you say is like, even in this time that you are writing, putting all this effort, energy, and work into these articles, it's even if they weren't like getting crazy traction for you back then, it's insane to think of the luck you generated for yourself when you happen to find the channel, which was Twitter threads in this instance, where it's like, oh, I kind of already did all the heavy lifting here to where I can, you know, format it correctly, put it all into the Twitter thread the way it should be. And then all of a sudden you're like prepared for a year to just see exponential growth on your Twitter presence because you found the right like platform for the stuff you already did the hard thinking on. And I think I've I've experienced this recently with like doing this podcast for a couple of years and only recently did I sign up for like Instagram Reels, TikTok, YouTube Shorts. And it's crazy because I have this whole back catalog of these amazing interviews I've gotten that I've been so lucky to be able to do. But now it's like, oh, I just have to clip down all these amazing people, James Clear, Jack Butcher, like Steph Smith, all these amazing people I've gotten to talk to. And now... I'm starting to see like real growth with the show because all that preparation kind of in the past, now there's a format that's like, oh, this is like the accelerant that I've been waiting for. And I didn't even really realize it was there, but it's made my life so much easier because like I have a whole war chest of stuff 
that I've already done the hard work on that now I've found the right format to, to actually really propel it forward. And that's an interesting way to think about your work because I think a lot of creators probably just stop when it gets hard or they just stop when it's like, yeah, this isn't really catching on. But if you love something the way you loved writing articles, you were setting yourself up for the future and didn't even probably know it in a lot of ways, which is really, really cool. Yeah, absolutely. I think it goes back to to this idea that everything takes longer than you think. Yeah. And and there really are no shortcuts. You yes. know, like when you think someone has a shortcut, what you're not seeing is is, you know, you're seeing the tip of the iceberg and, and not the whole iceberg underneath, you know, because people people will say, Oh my gosh, like you know, how did Wes grow by you know, over ten thousand followers per month, mm-hmm. like right, for a year. And a lot of it was driven by the previous decade of right. thinking writing, creating content, right? Laying that groundwork with with very little results. So yeah, it's it's definitely very encouraging, I think, to, you know, to I, I think the lesson there is to do something that you are obsessed with and would do even if if people weren't reading it. Mm. You know, like with with my tweet threads, for example, like I have some that hit and some that miss. But every single one I am proud of. Yeah. I can't control necessarily how many impressions I get or, you know, what the algorithm is favoring or right a bunch of different variables, but I can control putting out high quality stuff that I stand behind because that's my reputation. That's my credibility. It's a reflection of my thinking and my quality mm-hmm. of thinking. So I don't want to just put out stuff that is going to get likes or is, is going to go, you know, mini viral if it feels service level, right? right? Or feels like pandering or, you know, is one of those 99% of people use Twitter wrong. Like here's you know, here's how to, <laughs> right, here are the yeah. five, here are the 50 accounts you should follow to blank. Like, right. Like there's so yeah. many seeming, you know, seemingly shortcut ways to grow. And, and it's cool if you want to do that, like fair, like people have different, you know, worldviews sure. and value systems and whatnot. For me personally, the intellectual honesty and the rigor, the quality of thinking, like that's exciting to me, mm. you know? So that was really what I was excited about when I was writing, you know, for the past decade. Um, it was wanting to figure out this idea that I felt like was important, that needed mm. to be shared, that influenced my work, that if I could share with other people, could help them too. And so when I think when you have that deeper um, purpose or like something else fueling you besides only audience growth, it becomes much more meaningful of a journey and the content that you create is is probably going to be better. Definitely. Definitely. And you will withstand the hard seasons of, oh, it's it's not working right now or whatever working means, but it's like, it's not really about whether or not it quote unquote works. It's about whether or not I'm doing what's real to me and what feels good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I, I want to move into learning and education a little bit. And I think looking at your background, you're clearly drawn and you can correct me if this term is wrong, cause it might be, you might not agree with it, but toward untraditional forms of education. Why is that? Yeah. Good question. Um, I think part of it is I was never great at school. As a kid, you know, throughout K through 12 in college, on the outside, I was a pretty good student. But it was because it was because I was I was like a duck paddling really hard underwater, right? You're like right. gliding along the surface and people are like, "Oh, you're such a good student. Like this must come easily for you." But underneath the surface, I had a ton of private tutoring. I was going mm-hmm. to a bunch of different like after-school classes and like, you know, group tutoring one-on-one, right? And so it took a lot of help, external mm-hmm. help for me to kind of like perform at a level where where I think with some people it it 
were better at school, like it really did come naturally. I also think that my um, my and like a bunch of people's brains work differently than what standardized tests in school curriculum expects. Right. So uh, I remember, I think this was in the second grade, uh, the teacher called my parents into the classroom. They were mm. they were concerned. And they were like, well, Wes performed really shitty on this standardized test. And by the way, this happened like literally throughout like uh, star tests in K-12, SATs, the GMATs when I was thinking about applying to business school, like shit, performed terribly mm-hmm. on every standardized test I've ever taken. Yeah. And so, you know, flash forward, you know, or, or uh, rewind back to, to second grade. So so the teacher called my parents in and um, they wanted to talk about my reading comprehension skills. But they were like, okay, well, Wes like read this paragraph and had to answer these five questions. And her answer is like really weird, you know? So this 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 paragraph is about uh, a story of a boy who is walking home. It's really hot. He's sweating. He walks by a lake. The lake looks very cool. What does the boy do next is one of the questions. Okay. Now I'm proud to say I would know what is what the right answer would be for that, you know, A, B, C, D, E. Uh, but back then... You know, the right answer was jump in the lake, right? The answer I chose was go home. Hmm. So in my mind, it made so much sense. And I, and I, every time I took standardized tests and, and, you know, got the wrong answer, I wish I could explain or like have a conversation with, with, right. you know, the test writer so I could explain, I could show my case, right? Like right. Yeah. share my rationale and they would see like, okay, fine. Like I kind of get it. Right? right. Like, so, you know, my rationale for that was lakes are kind of dirty and, uh, <laughs> My house has air conditioning and soda in the fridge. So if I'm hot, like I would just go home, right? So like, I feel like there's school in general. This is such a good example of school thinking people have to think in a certain way, Mm. right? Fit into certain boxes. Like your logic has to be this, this, and this. Whereas there are actually multiple right ways to get to an answer, right? right? With defensible rationale, right? And so, you know, I feel like school just, you know, it always felt kind of a little bit like a battle. And I distinctly remember, especially with math, that I, uh, there were so many times when I felt stupid, right? I, and it, and it wasn't just like, oh, I don't get this. It's, it's a feeling of absolute futility, mm. which I think is one of the most, um, one of the saddest feelings. Futility as in like the, the exact opposite of hope. Right. right. Like if you have some hope, like, oh, if I if I try really hard, I can get this. It might take a really long time, but I can get it. Whereas like futility is like, no, like there's no way mm. you're ever gonna get this. You know? Yeah. And and there were many times, especially in quantitative classes, where where I felt that. Mm. And it was just so hopeless. Like I did not see a path forward. And uh it wasn't until after I had I had graduated from from UC Berkeley, I was working in San Francisco when I uh, decided to take uh, a, a retake calculus one because I had gotten a C in it freshman year, and at that time I was applying to business schools and and you know all the top schools obviously want people who who get good grades. It's kind of table stakes. It's like who doesn't have good grades right. when you apply to top ten schools, right? Like right. you have to do that baseline plus like show that you're a leader, show upward mobility and and, and you know career progression, whatever. And so you know so they saw this the C and then you know other C's speckled with quantitative classes on my on my on my report card uh, my transcript and uh one of the schools that i was really excited about said we think you show potential but your grades are just too bad in quantitative mm-hmm. classes so if you're willing to retake calculus one to show us that that 
your math is actually decent, then we will take that into account when um, when thinking about our waitlist. And so I decided to do it. And this time, it was through UC Berkeley Extension in San Francisco. There were six or seven people total in the class. Okay. The first time that I took Calculus 1 at UC Berkeley as an undergrad, uh, there were 800 people mm. in the class. So yeah. way smaller. The professor was amazing. And he made all of us sit in one row, in the front row. And every couple of minutes, he would go from one person to the other asking a question. There was no, like, you. it wasn't based on us raising our hands from randomly picking. It was just like, we're going down the line. And mm. you're going to answer. And, and we're going to make sure no one is left behind. And this was such a stark contrast to to pretty much like any educational experience up until then. And, and I ended up getting an A in that class. Mm. And, you know, I didn't even end up going to business school. I ended up joining Seth Godin and starting a business, an online yeah. business school instead with the Alt MBA. Uh, so it's kind of ironic, but, but that uh, redemption story was just so important for me. And it just showed me that, hey, maybe, maybe I can challenge this idea that I'm not good at math, mm. you know, that I'm not good at school and not good at learning that, Maybe it's the the learning format, right? Or and and the way that that the learning is presented. Maybe maybe there's hope for me and others after all, you know. And I think that's one thing that I'm so excited about core based courses is that it's opening up. First of all, a whole new group of instructors, you know, right. and maybe we call them digitally native professors. So these are people who aren't teaching at a university. These are people with you know real world experience who are operators themselves. You know, early, Lenny Ruchitsky, early product manager at Airbnb. It's uh you know we have a former COO of Bridgewater Associates. Uh, we have former heads of UX at Walmart, behavioral design at Walmart, operators at Google, Meta, right? SparkToro, mm -hmm. VPs of marketing at SparkToro. So really interesting backgrounds that are sharing their knowledge. Right. Right. So that's kind of the instructor side. And then on the student side, the learning format side, it's opening up access by bringing all of this amazing expertise now online in this format where you are learning in community. You're learning right. with other people. You're talking about ideas. You're debating. You're role playing. You're getting feedback. You're actually, you know, if you're taking a, a sale, a course on sales, you're not just reading about sales or being lectured at about sales or doing like theoretical projects about sales. You're actually sending out DMs. Mm. You were you were sending out your cold pitches, seeing what the conversion rate is, adjusting your pitch, getting some feedback on it, and then sending out another batch of DMs. Right? Awesome. Like it's so much more real and it reflects the way that we actually learn, you know, which right. is by talking about ideas, which is by engaging with ideas, you know, learning something, immediately putting it into practice, realizing that you didn't learn it after all, because when you try to implement it, it didn't actually work the way you expected. And then going back to the drawing board and learning some more and then trying, right? So I call this the learn-do cycle. Mm. So the past, the old way was learn, 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 do. Right. The new way <laughs> right. is learn, do, learn, do, learn, do. Learn, do. Yeah, right? You're alternating. Yeah. Exactly. And I think, I think humans always learn this way, but core-based courses are kind of bringing that to the forefront, you know, bringing the best parts of, of in-person learning online with the scale and the accessibility that the internet provides. For sure. Yeah, I, I definitely resonate with that personally. I was also a horrible student. Math was also my downfall all through grade school. And I think in high school, I kind of learned that. So I, I barely passed. I was like one of those kids who had like 57 
percent in my class and i would like go beg the teacher at the end of semester like hey can i do like one extra credit but i remember and my wife hates this story because she is a master she's this, this incredible student and she's really good at school and i remember i think it was a freshman in high school when it kind of clicked for me where my goal wasn't to learn and i went to a public school in albuquerque new mexico so like pretty small town but my goal wasn't actually to learn my goal was to make the teacher like me because i knew come the end of semester I could beg and plead and I would have a much better case of actually getting a pass. And it worked. I passed with like a mm. 2.3 GPA out of high school, but it became a social game to me much more than an educational game, which was probably bad for a lot of reasons, <laughs> but I feel bad even saying it out loud or admitting that, but it's just true. Like how that's how I learned to approach school and I didn't go to college. I, I briefly went and I dropped out just because I felt like this is just not for me. This whole environment is not for me at all. And I feel like I, I felt in the moment, like I am wasting my time. I'm wasting my life by being in these classes when I should be out doing stuff, like actually getting hands-on experience doing things. But what you're describing with the cohort based and learn, do, learn, do feels like the, like, I wish this was there for me back when, you know, mm -hmm. and 10, 12 years ago, whenever this was, because it feels way more built for someone who thinks like me. And there have to be countless, you know, kids turning into teenagers, turning into adults in college who need something else than what's honestly just like a failure in the educational system for a lot of students and like not providing what they what they need. Um, I'm curious, like, I do feel like in online courses, there's a little bit of, at least for me, a little bit of like scammy vibes <laughs> with like a lot of online courses. And I'm curious where like it's do this, buy my course for 200 bucks or 300 bucks and you'll become a real estate mogul or some crazy stuff. For like $97.97. Always. That's like, the price. Right? Yes. Yeah. 97. Yes. Yeah. So good. Yeah. So I'm curious, like for for you and where Maven is operating, how do you approach like both like positioning Maven, but also like your philosophy around like maybe where other online educational things like online courses have failed? Like, how do you approach that that problem um, yeah. or that perception that people might have? Yeah, online learning definitely needs a rebrand. Yeah, uh, I think when you say online learning, the first thing that people think of are you know what you mentioned a lot of internet marketers who are a little bit spammy and, you know, way more focused on marketing and selling their courses than having credible, useful, valuable um, substance mm. to sell. And so, yeah, this is, it's, it's unfortunate. I, I think part of it is due to video driven courses being, you know, being the way that they are. So there's no engagement. There's very, there's, there's, less accountability that the instructor needs to bring to the table because it's one directional. So you record something and then you release it out into the world and then someone buys it. It's usually at a price point that's low enough where if it sucks, like, do I really want to fight for the refund or do I want to just move on with my life? You know? And well, there's, there's um, a, a secret psychology to that too, to where if you feel ashamed that you didn't finish the course or you didn't get what you don't want to be the person who's like, exactly. I yeah. failed. So I need my money back. Right, there's a psychology right. there too. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. So like all these things don't really keep the instructor super mm. accountable. Right. Whereas core based courses flip the script on this. There's a very high bar to running a core based course. Mm. You are. And, and the reason for it is because it's a bi-directional relationship. You are in a live setting where 
your students will ask you questions in front of other people. And right. if you can't answer them, it's kind of embarrassing, yeah. right? So like it incentivizes you to have your shit together right. and to not sell, you know, fluffy stuff that people are going to complain about and not be very happy about. The price points are also higher. So, you know, with higher sure. price points, usually come higher expectations. So if you're charging $500, $750, you know, $1,500 for a course, your students are coming in with higher expectations. So, right. you know, I, I call it the, the content hierarchy of BS. Uh, and you can imagine a triangle, you know, a pyramid where the bottom are channels where there's more room for BS. And it's usually one directional uh, mm. channels. So Twitter, great example, 280 characters, <laughs> say whatever you want. No one's, yeah, right? Like, yeah. right. And then, and you don't have to defend it. Uh, speeches, keynote speeches, right? You're up on stage. The power dynamic is one where you have the mic, you are mm. sharing, right? And if, if your audience questions something that you're saying or like, finds a logical loop in what you're saying or it doesn't really make sense mm. it's not easy for them to push back right right uh because you have the mic you're on stage podcasts another good example like one directional like you get to say what you want to say right and it's not that it's not these channels aren't good it's just that the the format of them there's more room and more leeway for lazy thinking of course totally. there are high quality yeah. podcasts high quality speeches high quality articles books etc um totally. but there's there's yeah. a broader range for uh the floor, basically. Yeah. Uh, obviously, the ceiling is very high still. So now if you look at kind of the, the top part of that content hierarchy of BS, mm. um, courses are a bit harder to BS, right? You right. have to have a lot of great material. Books, courses, right? Stronger material. It's still one directional though. But coaching, consulting, now we're starting to get into, you know, hey, like people are paying you good money and they want you to solve their problems and right. you are having a conversation. You can't just say something that sounds smart, right? right. People can push back. And then core-based courses also up there yeah. on, higher on, on the current content target BS where uh, there's less less room for BS for all okay. the reasons that we just talked about. Yeah, for sure. I, I fully agree with that. There's plenty of, <laughs> I think the, the multi-directional feedback of like customer being able to directly communicate with the business and then both of them having to have their incentives aligned is huge. And I also want to just say there's so much bullshit said on podcasts <laughs> <You're right there. laughs> and a lot of people believe a lot of bullshit from podcasts. And so we could use a little bit more multi-directional communication, mm. but yeah, no, love that, it. good that, spiky point of view. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. I mean, especially the past, past few years, it's just gotten crazy. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I think that all that makes makes a ton of sense. And I really do resonate with the the cohort base. And I love the idea of like the multidirectional accountability of like a student. It's always been this way with online learning, but a student will get out what they put in. But a, it, a teacher has always it's always felt to me a little like, yeah, there's not enough accountability here. And it feels like the business model inherently has zero accountability with it. Whereas this one I love the idea of, you know, you pay a premium because it's all live, right? It's like you're doing these courses with... Um, it's like usually a mix. There's live okay. and some async. Yeah. So if there's anything that's that's that makes more sense async, then we'll do it async. So if right. it's a lecture, if it's a one-directional lecture, if someone is just talking at you, you might as well turn that into a video. People can watch it on 2x speed, right? Be able yep. to pause when they want to. And then the live parts are interactive. So yeah. we recommend instructors spend the live parts on discussion, live teardowns, right? So, you know, uh, cool. we have some instructors who will teach a writing course and then we'll have their students uh, actually write five headlines or write five tweet hooks or yeah. like write, you know, whatever. And then they'll pick from 
what everyone just shared to do a teardown. Say like, okay, here's what you did well. Here's what you could do differently. I would trim this, move this up, right? And to kind of just share their thought process. So anything that's live, you know, should be something that you can only do live. Gotcha. That's cool. I think I think to close out, are, are you good on a few more minutes? Yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. I wanted to like kind of, we can kind of start wrapping up here, but around being a founder of a company, I would love to hear your experience in founding Maven and you've co-founded things, other things in the past, but now it's Maven. I'm just curious your experience, like what are some challenges you faced in being a founder of Maven and how do you overcome them when they arise? Like maybe just give me high level. What is it like to be a founder of a company like this? Because it seemed like it, it emerged at this very ideal time during like right at the end of, I remember the launch. It was awesome. I was stoked on Maven. It looks great. Like this is a really cool idea. So your launch was solid, but I, I <laughs> Thank remember you. seeing it. But I'm curious, like there it cannot always be easy. So I'm curious, like for your experience, what is it like to be a founder? Yeah, I think that things are always messier behind the scenes than they look in public. So you yeah. know, there's a fair amount of messiness too uh, with with things behind the scenes for us. Yeah. Um, I think the thing that that I find challenging is that. You know, there's there's all these things that in theory you'd want to do or like aim for. So like a tight feedback loop, right? Like everyone's gonna be like, yeah, like you want a tight feedback loop. Mm. But in reality, there there are natural um, timelines for certain things where you can't necessarily rush it. And so for us, for example, court based courses, you know, students take a couple per year because it's a it's a premium um, investment. You know, it's it's they run from several hundred hundred dollars to, you know, low thousands and also, you know, take time. And then instructors are running, you know, a couple times a year. So, mm. you know, four, four times a year ish. And so if a course is running four times a year, there, that's a three month gap between one right. cohort to the next. Right. So to, to get two reps, two cycles, that's six months, mm. you know. And so so there, there are things like that where it's like, OK, ideally, we would want a faster feedback loop to learn what's working, what's not, right? Like, is the strategy working? And I'm I'm learning that there are there are things that you can't necessarily rush. Mm. That you you make a bet and you use your judgment and you use your instincts and you use data and you make the best bet that you can that you think is gonna, you know, be the best chance of success. But then like you won't know if it works for three to six months, you right. know? And I think that that is actually more of the case than not with a lot of startups. Yeah. Like you ideally want tighter feedback loops, but but there are certain things where, and it's not just, you know, within ours, because we have kind of a, a natural cadence and timing with courses. It's for, it's for a lot of different projects where it takes a certain amount of activation energy to get that tactic going. You yeah. know, like if you, like even using threads as an example, if you write three threads and then stop, are you going to see growth? Probably not. You might, you know, like you just didn't do it yeah. for long enough. Like you might right. need to do it for three months before you start seeing results, right? Mm -hmm. Your skill is going to improve during those three months and your audience is going to realize that you're posting on a regular cadence. So, and you're just giving yourself enough reps to, to be able to, you know, have something that hits even, right? right. With, with three, like what are the chances one of those is, is really going to hit? So I think that's, that's interesting. You know, there's, there's a lot of lessons like that where, you know, in theory, one thing, but in practice, you know, another. And, you know, I love, the, the Mike, there's a Mike Tyson quote that everyone has a plan <laughs> until you get punched in the mouth, yes. you know? And so doing a startup is like getting punched in the mouth every day, you know? Yeah. Um, it's kind of fun, actually. I, one of our values at Maven is that hard work is fun. 
So it's kind of a a nerdy, you know, I call them nerd thrills. It's a little bit of a nerd thrill. Um, But, (laughs) but, you know, it's, yeah, it's intellectually challenging, right? It's, we're solving problems that, that um, have non-obvious solutions. If it were easy, someone else would have already done it. So yeah, it's, it's supposed to be hard. You know, we're supposed to be trying to figure it out. So yeah, I think, I think the journey of it and, and the attempts at trying to figure out is, is really exciting. Yeah. Have you had any like scary moments when you're like, oh shit, I don't know if this is going to work out. <laughs> well, we've definitely had hypotheses that were wrong. So, yeah. so we did a, we did a, a relaunch just a couple of weeks ago. Hmm. And, uh, so the first time that we launched, it was, you know, I think like three weeks after Gog and I started the company, I don't even know if we found our technical co-founder yet. I think we had found him like a month later or something. So it was just me, me, Goggin, and our first hire. We didn't even have a name. And we launched as Wes and Goggin's new startup with a Notion page. Awesome. Um, and so, so it, was, it was really janky. Um, and we hit the ground running. We, we were making revenue um, before we even had a name. And so, you know, we kind of started off uh, really strong and started working directly with creators. And our hypothesis there was that people with big audiences were going to be uh, the best instructors. Mm. That, you know, they had valuable content that they were already sharing, they had an audience, they can convert a portion of that audience to students. Um, and we did this for uh, about a year, year, year and a half. Mm. And we realized, you know, during that time, we also started working with a bunch of smaller creators. And, and so our sample size got bigger. Mm. And we started seeing a pattern that smaller creators were equally successful. It mm. took a little bit more time for them to get going, but a lot of them were ready to hustle. They were willing to hustle. They wanted to build a course business. Uh, they, they had a lot of credibility and they were, you know, many times just more excited about it than bigger creators who were simultaneously trying to grow on YouTube, simultaneously trying to right. start a, a fund, you know, and, you know, do this and that, right? A job board and, and all mm-hmm. these other things. And so we realized that our, our hypothesis of focusing only on creators was wrong. And so a couple of weeks ago, uh, we launched a, a new approach that we'd been working on for a couple of months before that all summer on catering to subject matter experts, mm. regardless of audience size. So not yeah. necessarily, you know, creators in the creator economy, but if you're an expert in UX design, in marketing, in FP&A, in, uh, you know, in, in finance, right, in people management, HR, uh, all these topics that are very useful for working professionals who want to right. take courses and, and upskill. You know, we, we started shifting our focus towards experts uh, and kind of, I wouldn't say shifting focus, I'd say broadening the focus. So we still, yeah. you, if you think about, you know, creators are still uh, a circle within a larger circle now. Before they were 100% of the circle, and now we have a right. broader circle that encompasses creators, experts, uh, executives, you know, a lot of executives, you know, are, are tired of kind of climbing the corporate ladder and they want to be advisors to companies now or they want to teach or they want to consult right something that's that's a little bit different of a pace uh so we have a lot of instructors who are who are like that and so uh yeah so that was that was a big shift um and then we also started catering to students before that we were entirely supply side focused instructor focused we didn't think too much about the demand side of students uh and so that couple weeks ago we launched uh we relaunched our website so it's it's student facing now uh, so Very you can cool. scroll through and see over a hundred courses, uh, live in the next couple of weeks, looking for topics that, that you might, you know, be interested in taking before then, I think at any given time we had five courses maximum. Uh, so now it's, you know, magnitude more. And so, yeah, we updated our, our hypothesis, uh, and we'll continue doing so, you know, we're going to see what, what works. Um, 
double down on that. What's not working, stop doing that. And I think that's a very natural part of the process. That's cool. Can I ask you one nerdy question? Like super yes. nerdy? So, okay. So I'm curious because it sounds like a really awesome pivot and it makes a lot of sense. I'm curious for, you know, gathering leads now. I think having creators doing the courses, that felt like a very natural like a really healthy lead generator for warm leads of people like who follow this creator. Of course they want to take their course now moving more toward experts who might not have an audience. I'm sure you weighed that into the decision of like, so now how are you going to, what's your plan? If you can tell, like if you can tell me what's the plan now, as far as getting leads from people who don't have a big following, like, is it a totally different marketing style now? Like what's, what's the plan there? Yeah. Great question. Um, it's definitely something that we're still figuring out. So yeah. there are trade-offs with this path. I think one thing that will likely be stable is that instructors will also have to put an effort into their marketing. Right. So, you know, with, with <laughs> yeah. you know, just don't because we're a marketplace, up. yeah, right. exactly. doesn't mean that you just don't do any marketing. You know, right. even if you think about uh, video-driven courses on Udemy, LinkedIn Learning, Skillshare, right? Where yeah. a lot of people will say that it's passive income, quote unquote, that you make this course, then you start, you know, just getting students. Those courses, those creators still had to drive those students too, right? right. Like once you recorded your course, you still had to actively uh, have a have a, a marketing funnel and sales funnel totally. that would drive eyeballs to your course, right? So I think in in any course, there's always going to be um it's always going to be better if the instructor is also actively involved and wanting to promote their course uh, versus just kind of sitting back and, and letting naturally whoever finds them find them. So yeah, it's definitely a, a collaborative effort with instructors also marketing their courses. We are also marketing them. You know, before, like we were not even sending out emails to our list and we have a pretty good list for, you know, not ever trying to build that list. Um, yeah. But we were not consistent about surfacing interesting courses to people mm -hmm. or right like we were not consistent about about reaching out to people who had taken a course to, to suggest right. other ones right that are uh adjacent in topic right For so sure. there's so much low-hanging fruit of things that we're starting to do that i think are going to continue driving a bunch of eyeballs to the maven website so that uh that discoverability piece becomes something that that uh instructors are excited about for sure and i also think too it's almost like yeah, you might be foregoing or now expanding the pie a little bit to where it's maybe less focused on gigantic audience, but it's like maybe for a subject matter expert, they could have a very, you know, much smaller audience, but it's just a way deeper connection mm -hmm. to that audience to where it's like, oh, if you're, you know, if, if you have a thousand people who follow you very, very closely and really give a shit about what you think and say, that's a great way. That's a great pool of people to sell an online cohorted uh, course to. Totally. So it, it makes, yeah. I think that's that's a. I could definitely see that working really well. Yeah, and if if you think about the alternative too of of self hosting your course on your own website, let's say, uh, or or on your own URL, where uh, you're kind of an island and you're responsible right. for driving all the top of funnel eyeballs, like that is it's very very hard, right? Yeah. Whereas at least if you list somewhere where naturally, you know, a bunch of people every day are already coming as a destination to look for courses with that intent to find something they want to learn about. It, it gives you a leg up. So Definitely. yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Cool. Well, no, that's, that's awesome, Wes. And I really appreciate you being on. Um, yeah, we'll wrap up here. But I mean, where, where should people find you? We talked a lot about Twitter, obviously, Maven, everyone go check out uh, th those spots. But yeah, is there anywhere specifically you want to send send listeners? Yeah, so check out maven.com. 
and at MavenHQ on Twitter. And then I'm at Wes underscore KO on Twitter and also on LinkedIn too. Awesome. Wes, thank you so much for being here. And thanks to everybody for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to get more of these conversations sent to your inbox, head over to alexsug.com, sign up for the newsletter, and always get updated when a new episode drops. Uh, last but not least, this episode is edited by Josh Perez. If you are looking for help with your podcast, Josh is your guy, great producer, and an even better human being. Get in touch with him at justjoshperez.com. I'll be back soon with another new episode. So until then, go make something cool. Thank you.